Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation, as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals. This podcast is for you. According to the Association of American Medical Colleges, women represent just 35% of active physicians, although they have made up almost 50% of graduating medical students since 2004. Women physicians make $76 for every dollar earned by men, even after adjusting for age, years of experience, and specialty. And fewer than 20% of medical school deans and department chairs are women. If you're at all interested in the status of women in medicine and the role of education in in addressing gender inequalities and inequities in the health professions, then you're going to love today's episode. I'm speaking with Rebecca Ortega about improving gender equity in cardiology. Rebecca is the founding and executive director of Women as One, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting talent in medicine by offering professional opportunities to women cardiologists through programs like CLIMB, the Escalator Awards, and RISE, and by maintaining a talent directory to help diversify clinical trial leadership. Rebecca shares career journey insights from being the Director of Education at the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions to being the Executive Director of Women as One. She draws our attention to the correlation between highly paid procedural subspecialty areas and gender gaps in pay. We're looking at you, orthopedic surgery, electrophysiology, and interventional cardiology. And she talks strategy for empowering women in medicine. And before we jump into today's episode, a quick shout out to listener Natalie Goldberg, PhD, who says, you know, I'm actually learning a great deal about who's who in CME from listening to the Right Medicine podcast. We're glad you're a listener, Natalie, and I hope you really enjoy our conversation today with Rebecca Ortega. Put the kettle on, put your walking shoes on, grab your dog's leash, Put your AirPods in or your earbuds, and let's get into today's conversation about gender equity in cardiology. 
Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's good to see you. So please share with Right Medicine listeners something about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm Rebecca Ortega. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Women as One, which focuses on promoting talented physicians in medicine, specifically uh, women in cardiology, at least at the moment. And can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into Women as One, a little bit about your journey? Sure. So I got my master's degree in healthcare administration from Georgetown University in DC and started, as you do, sort of working at the ground level, uh, sort of within healthcare systems and didn't really love the hospital environment and was looking for something that was more creative, maybe more of a creative outlet. And through connections was introduced to the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, which is a mouthful, but is the professional society that represents interventional cardiologists. And so not having any plan or, or vision to be in the CME space, I started really with like paperwork, grant work, that type of thing, but then recognized that there was a chance to raise my hand and, and volunteer for more creative work. So I kind of dipped into my, my liberal arts background, uh, my undergrad background, and, and really got interested in grant writing and in kind of figuring out how ideas could be transformed into, into life. And that segued into sort of the advancement of my career into being the director of education at SCAI, which is what it was called, and then into being the director of education at DCRI, which is the Duke Clinical Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina. So doing kind of a similar thing uh, at that point, but really building my understanding of the healthcare nonprofit space and very much in the cardiovascular space and starting to recognize that women were nowhere to be seen or very few and far between, I suppose. And doing some research into that, recognized that not only were there few and far between, but they weren't being treated very well. And as a woman and as somebody who likes to solve problems, it you know became an interest area of mine. And I eventually kind of reconnected with a physician that I'd worked with at SCAI. Her name is Roxana Moran, and she's at uh, Mount Sinai in New York. And we being kind of co-passionate about this idea of supporting women in the field, started working together uh, again in 2018, first at her research center in, uh, in New York at Mount Sinai, and then in forming Women as One as a standalone 501c3, which I had no idea how to do. I was Googling, you know, how do you start a nonprofit organization? Literally, like I, I didn't know how to do it. And we just started from scratch and recognized that there was a need and slowly started to build the organization. And it's been an exciting uh, several years of growth so far. So there are so many different threads in that kind of oh, yeah. summary of your, <laughs> of your journey. So uh, I want to kind of back up a little bit. You were sure. at the Society for Cardiovascular at, or SCAI, which I've always yeah. called Sky. Sky. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you can do a sky. I don't know. It's like you could do the big mouthful. You do the acronym. I don't know who's listening. So. Yeah. No. No. I'm. I'm glad that you spelled it out. And we would certainly. We'll certainly do that in the show notes. Anyway, but sky is just so much easier. Can you talk a little bit about? You know, you said something about you started to kind of recognize or see that, you know, women weren't treated very well. And I imagine, you know, in the interventional space, and I think you're probably going to kind of tell us a little bit more about this. There are even fewer women because it's so highly technical. And you see this in orthopedics as well and other specialties where 
there's a very kind of technical aspect. There are fewer women and certainly fewer women who seem to kind of get to positions of of leadership in those specialty areas. Yep. Can you tell us about some of the things that you observed that gave you pause? Yeah, well, it's, I don't know, it's maybe not a mystery that, you know, there's a pay gap in the workforce in general when it comes to gender. So I started kind of noticing that, but then started digging into the literature about, you know, what was happening in medicine, what was happening in cardiology, what was happening in the subspecialties within cardiology and in other subspecialties. And at least what I found is that there's a correlation between highly paid procedural subspecialty areas and gender gaps. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about orthopedic surgery, you're talking about, I don't know, EP, uh, electrophysiology, you're talking about interventional radiology, uh, interventional cardiology, all of these areas where you get highly, highly specialized, there are fewer and fewer and fewer women. And I think that's related to a few things. One is it requires a tremendous amount of training. And so women who are thinking about starting families, it's just not particularly practical. And then you're thinking about being in practice in those specialties or subspecialty areas, and you have young kids and you're on call at night. It, I believe, or at least we've read this, it is an impractical decision. And then beyond that, you know, there's a higher level of competitiveness because these are the higher paid areas. And so there's a, there's a cutthroat type of culture involved in who gets to do which procedures, the RVUs behind that, you know, who gets advancement opportunities. So it all kind of comes together into this picture of unattractiveness, <laughs> really, for women even if you are highly passionate about going into those areas. And as a problem solver, I guess, as I mentioned, as somebody who cares about this and wants to try to at least chip away at it, we thought, you know, what can we do? Where can we start? Where can we go? It's such a broad landscape. And I believe at least we're trying to do some of that within women as one. Now, it's interesting that so many of the barriers and obstacles you kind of described there are so many of them seem to be associated with women making choices and women making decisions about what's going to work for their lives. Do you also see in the literature and in the work that you do, is there gatekeeping? Is there, you know, are there elements of gatekeeping which actually kind of prevent women from moving into these highly specialist areas? Because you mentioned the competitiveness of you know, cardiology. And, and, and obviously, there are lots of specialties that are incredibly competitive within medicine. Yes, I guess would be the simple answer. Whether that's deliberate or conscious or subconscious, I suppose, is a different question. You know, there there certainly people or, or, I don't know, I guess I would say people at large out there who sort of believe in the stereotypes around like, what women are suited for, right? We hear lots of sort of war stories about women in fellowship positions going into interview and being asked about their intentions to have kids because the practice is wondering, you know, how they're going to cover that work when the person is out on leave. So there's some gatekeeping, I guess, from a stereotypical or, or bias-based standpoint. There's also much more sort of deliberate or competitive, like, well, I want to get to this spot, so I'm going to push you down kind of gatekeeping. I think that's that's less so than the maybe subconscious gatekeeping that happens. But but yeah, it certainly happens. <laughs> so when you were at Sky and at uh, DCRI, you began to write sort of more grants. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about 
well, I guess there's two things there. One is, were you able to use some of those grant writing opportunities to address some of the things that you were seeing in relation to women's experience of being in cardiology? Well, it's exciting. I, you know, so you go from, and I'm sure many people can relate to this experience. You go from being in college or graduate school where you're learning lots of things, you're having really interesting discussions, you're feeling really inspired to then getting your first job, which is typically extremely mundane. (laughs) And even before I went to graduate school, I was answering the phone at a real estate company. And I was crying almost every day in the bathroom thinking like, what am I like, what am I doing? Like my brain is like seeping out of my ears, right? And so to go into an opportunity where I got to raise my hand and get called on to do things that were more intellectually challenging was really exciting at the time for me. So I was just hungry for knowledge, for for feeling like I was feeding my brain. And so jumping into grant writing and in answering questions and solving problems and bringing money into the organization, like that was incredibly satisfying to me. But then you kind of reach a point where you're like, okay, well, I know how to do this. And what else can I do? And, you know, you start kind of growing your branches out into different directions, if you will. Yeah, I've heard that uh, more recently described as entrepreneurship, where you begin ah, to where you yeah. begin to kind of craft a path uh, within an organization to grow what you're interested in. But I think you have to have an organization that's supportive of that. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, I've found, uh, I don't know, and this is based on my experience, which is limited, that was easier to do in a smaller organization that wanted to grow. And I was raising my hand and saying, I can help you grow, let me do it, versus a much larger organization, which is sort of built to slot you into a role that's fairly or almost entirely defined. And that's the nature, I guess, of large and smaller companies. But it is a challenge, I think, when you're trying to choose any career is, you know, do you want to be, and this is true when I, you know, I went to to college, do you want to be a big fish in a small pond? Do you want to be a small fish in a big pond? What's more important to you? Right. right. <laughs> well, let's talk about the shift from Sky to DCRI and in terms of, you know, the kind of work that you were doing and the kind of skills that you had to draw on in order to do that work. Was there a shift there for you in terms of what you were doing and how you had to do it and, and how deep you had to dig? <laughs> Between Sky and DCRI? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like that jump? Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. It was like light years apart. So <laughs> I... At Sky, as I mentioned, you know, it's a small organization. I think I was the seventh employee hired. And by the time I left, you know, we were 20 something, but very small nonprofit organization. Everybody knew each other. Everybody knew everything. We were very much a team in many ways. I gained a lot of knowledge in the CME space and a lot of different kind of skill sets and opportunities because we were small. And because we were working in interventional cardiology and DCRI is led primarily by cardiologists. I don't yeah, they still know. Mm there were some connections that I had some contacts that I had that kind of went to bat for me and said, Hey, you know, this woman's smart. I think she can do a good job. And I was stepping into a position where I was directing a department that was larger than sky. I'd never done that in a medical system that I think, and don't quote me on this, I guess, but like, I think it was like 65,000 employees within the Duke healthcare system. So 20 people, 65,000, it's like, a completely different universe. And 
having been given all of that freedom and all of those opportunities to just raise my hand and say, hey, go do it, to being slotted into more of that like specific role was a major adjustment for me. Even though the skill sets were very much the same, it was sort of that culture shift that was different. But let's talk about the skill sets a little bit. I, you know, I, I want, I want to get to women as one and and what your work involves there. But just kind of thinking about CME and you know, two different contexts. Where on the one hand, as you're describing, you have this small kind of engaged interactive organization. On the other, you know, a much larger organization in terms of resources and personnel, and presumably goals for CME as well. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in developing strategy and planning and implementing CME in these two different contexts? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Great question. So at Sky, because it was specific to interventional cardiology and because it was relatively small, it was always much easier to put my finger on what needed to happen, right? So, and especially as a, as a field that was evolving very rapidly at the time, this was about 2007, 2008, gen mm. technology was changing very rapidly. So right. to understand that, or at least to be thrown into it and to know that, hey, you know, there are all these new devices, there are all these new sort of procedural techniques that everybody needs to be trained on. And at the time, radial intervention versus femoral intervention was very hot. Yeah. And everyone in Europe was doing radial, radial and yeah. there were sort of like a small army of of folks in the US who were really trying to promote this. And I sort of jumped onto that bandwagon as the person who was in charge of education. And we just started rolling out educational programs because everybody needs to be trained. So in many ways that was it was exciting, but it was also kind of easy, right? <laughs> because it was obvious. And to be, but I I still gained those skills of like how to write a grant, how to, you know, kind of interact with industry, how to work with the physician committees that I was in charge of. And then to be sent over to to DCRI, where at the time when I first started, I was actually, I was in charge of the DCRI education department and the Duke CME office. So every department across Duke that was doing educational programs kind of flowed through our office for compliance purposes. So it was dramatically different because there was like just a much higher level of operational sophistication that like I needed to learn very quickly to be able to kind of to do my job. But I also saw and enjoyed sort of the opportunity to be creative within the confines of DCRI because it's one of the world's best academic research institutions. All of these amazing thought leaders are there. And how can I kind of lend my skill sets to that and create programs that showcase this great work that these people are doing? I mean, we started, I mean, this is a long time ago. We we started doing podcasts. We started doing, you know, kind of interesting educational programs that maybe hadn't been like in the in the zeitgeist previously. Mm-hmm. So that creativity piece was still intact. So, and that's, I think, what I ultimately enjoyed the most about that particular experience. <laughs> yeah. So the, the creativity part is, is kind of interesting, I think, because, you know, I imagine there are some listeners who, who hear grant writing and, you know, kind of perceive that to be a very sort of dry, right, documentational type of 
process, but but actually there are a lot of different pieces that need to come together in order to kind of feed yeah. a really rich, insightful grant. Can you talk about that process of, because I imagine that this is something that carries on to women as one as well, that process of beginning yeah. to build up a grant that is going to you know, secure the funding that you need for a program and do it in a way that is creative and rich and satisfying. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's the writing piece of it, right? Which is interesting in and of itself. Like if you enjoy writing just as an exercise, then that's a nice part of grant writing. But the why behind why you're doing something is always important. And I think particularly in grant writing, the needs assessment component, and that's what at least I was taught to do first, Mm -hmm. right? Which is why are we doing this? What's the need? Why is this important? And going and doing your homework and doing literature reviews or working with you know a team to do a lit review to truly understand why you're writing something and why it's important and to to build a passion for it in and of yourself, you know, to be able to write effectively and and convincingly. That is, I think, what excites me or what's always excited me about grant writing is doing the needs assessment component. First, I mean, you can have an inkling, you can have sort of an intuition, or or maybe somebody's telling you that like, hey, we're going to do this, or this is important. But then to really go embody that on your own, I think is a very good starting point for any grant writer. The construction elements behind sort of what the solution, so you, you're identifying the problem, that's really important. And then what are you proposing as a solution is the other exciting piece, which is to say, okay, I, I get it. This is a problem. I'm going to articulate why this is a problem. We're going to cite it. And then what are we proposing as a solution? And how is that solution unique or effective or both? That's another sort of intellectual challenge that I think any grant writer could or should appreciate as part of, of being this process. So there's the writing piece, which is important. There's the needs assessment piece, again, I think fundamental. And then there's sort of this creativity piece, which is, okay, how are we going to solve this problem? And in the procedural space, what did some of those problem solving you know, programs look like? Because I used to be a trauma OR nurse. So I, you know, I know that, that we were talking about a very tactile area. There needs to be a lot mm-hmm. of hand-eye coordination, a lot of opportunity to actually practice physically the types of procedures that we're talking about. So how did you manage that at Sky? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it goes back to what I was saying. So it's it's fairly easy when it's a procedural training issue. Like there's a new procedure that has been proven effective in clinical trials. Everybody needs to be trained. Let's go train them. Like that's pretty straightforward, right? Which I think ultimately is what led me to getting interested in more complicated problems like gender equity and gender mm-hmm. diversity. So you can identify and define the problem. Then how do you, it's not a training course necessarily. It's not a, certainly not a procedural training course. How do you create educational content or programs that address a need that is more complex? It's that at least is where I've kind of taken this mm-hmm. intellectually. So you kind of step into these different iterations of, of what you're interested in. I don't know. No, that's okay. I think, no, I, so I think this is, you mentioned gender equity, and that is clearly a different, 
all the metaphors that are coming to mind are completely inappropriate. Ball game, kettle of fish. (laughs) But, you know, distinctly different type of or set of challenges to address. So let's talk about women as one. Can you can you describe what women as one is and and what you do? Yeah. So it's essentially an experiment that we went out to try and see, you know, like whether or not the hypothesis of, you know, can we create an independent organization, a catalyst organization, whatever you want to call it, in the cardiovascular space, knowing what we know, and by we, I mean, basically me and Roxana, who is a very well-known and respected interventional cardiologist, can we kind of build on what we know and create something different that will be effective? Because what we were doing and what we've been seeing and experiencing really wasn't working. The problems were staying the same. If you look at the data, the number of women in the field, it's been stagnant you know, over like decades, the pay gap's been stagnant. There are very widely pervasive sexual harassment issues going on and not just in cardiology, but like you read these papers and you like just get depressed. (laughs) Like, why isn't anything changing? Why isn't anything working? And ultimately we felt that creating something independent of the major professional societies was the only way to try to do it because, and, and not that they don't care, it's that they're not built for this particular set of problems. They have a lot of problems to address, right? Many members to answer to, many sort of things to grapple with. And the issue of gender equity, while important, I think, to many, if not all of the societies, is one of many issues that they're dealing with. So it's never going to be the top of the Mm -hmm. priority list. And I think, you know, Roxanne and I saw that and knew that and felt like, okay, we need to make it the top of a priority list. And so we created this organization to do that. And it's built very much like a professional. We're not a membership society, so you're not going to be a member of Women as One, but it's a similar construct. So we're we're creating educational programs, grant programs, mentorship. We advocate for women around the world and really try to advance their careers in a way that speeds up the process. So we have a a membership, or I shouldn't call it a membership. Uh, we have a database uh, that kind of functions like a membership database called our. Uh, talent directory. Mm -hmm. And we collect a wide set of information from registrants, including their full CV. So they'll upload their CV and then they'll answer a series of questions and it's all sortable. So if a pharmaceutical company, for example, is starting a clinical trial and they're really pushing for diversity among their PIs, their principal Mm -hmm. investigators, then they can come to us and say, you know, we're doing this trial, we're looking for investigators with an expertise in, I don't know, heart failure. Mm -hmm. And we're really trying to focus on Europe. We don't have a great representation of women in Europe. We can go into that directory, which is now well over 2000 women and sort the information and understand the qualifications of the women who might be eligible for that opportunity. So in most cases, a professional society doesn't have that level of information about their members. Mm. It's very much word of mouth, though. I've worked with so-and-so before, or, you know, this person I hear is great, fantastic, but we can really go in and do data-driven identification of women for these opportunities. And we're creating educational programs and content to kind of push them up and create, you know, more opportunity for them from an advancement uh, perspective beyond that. So it's been, I, you know, it's, can I say that we're changing the world and we've just, we're solving the problems? Like, no. 
but we're trying and we're evaluating every sort of step that we're doing. And at least from where I sit, it's, it's a different approach than what I've seen before. No, a hundred percent. And it's so interesting when you talk about word of mouth and, you know, that, that recommendation of colleagues, because, you know, we, we kind of know from various studies, I think that that word of mouth piece is, is a bottleneck for women. Yes. It's hard for them to to become the I mean, person I that you automatically too, but recommend. Way fewer women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. But so I'm wondering everything that you're describing there. It, it sounds as though it requires a, an incredible degree of outreach because you yes. need to be able to kind of communicate what you're doing to you mentioned pharmaceutical companies so that they come to you in order to kind of get access to your database. How have you found that process of outreach and how much response, you know, what is the the nature of the response that you're getting from, let's stick with the pharmaceutical industry in the first place? Sure. I would say overwhelmingly positive. You know, most groups that we work with recognize that this is an issue. They're dealing with it on their end internally. You know, how do you kind of meet diversity mandates, which are now being sort of mandated, which I, I think is great. So, there's a need on their side, whether they believe it or not, there's, they're, they're being asked, they're being told that they need to diversify things. So they have to, whether or not they care. But I think in most cases, people care, which is nice. And so there's a positive response from that perspective. The issue that we bump up against most frequently is that, you know, these are massive companies. It's kind of that sky DCRI, mm. you know, contrast, right? These are massive organizations with thousands and thousands and thousands of employees around the world. and so much of the success of what we've done early on as we're trying to establish our brand is in relationship building. So going out and finding people to talk to and say, hey, we think we're onto something here. Like, let's talk. Maybe you'd be interested in this. You'll have a conversation with somebody or a series of conversations over several months, and then they'll move on to a different position in the company or they'll move on to a different company. That's something we see a lot in pharma and and med device. And so it's challenging to maintain those relationships because even if you write the world's most beautiful grant proposal, I found in my experience, at least that the relationship piece of things is really critical to getting buy-in on the sponsor side, because yes, they want to see that you've you know thought about this, you've done your homework, you've designed something interesting. They also want to know you and know that you're going to get the job done. So I, I'm not just saying, hey, I can do this, but then I actually do it. So that like that holistic kind of view of our company needs to be seen on the sponsor side. And the only way that happens is if you kind of create those relationships as personal relationships, which can be difficult with that sort of shifting of uh, personnel. And I think, at least in my perspective, like as of this moment, that's, that's a fairly big challenge. Yeah, challenging, not only in terms of personnel, but also in the accredited space where, you know, maintaining that sort of fine balance between, you know, independence and and transparency and integrity, whilst also building relationships that allow that process of exchange of ideas and building trust. Yeah. Can you speak to that? No, I have so many thoughts. (laughs) Like there has to be a dialogue, I think, to be effective. And you can maintain boundaries and you can, and we oftentimes tell companies no, because I have had that experience in compliance and I do know where that line is, but I don't know that it requires the level of regulation that's currently in place. I don't know that it 
actually is effective because people are talking to each other anyway, first of all. Yes. And secondly, we're we're an international organization and ACCME compliance at least is only relevant in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I ultimately feel like there needs to be a boundary and rules and regulations, but how do you do that in a world that's increasingly international as far as like content, education, whatever it is, it's flowing everywhere, right? So how does the ACCME compliance, like, how does that then become effective within the confines of the United States? Like, it can't be. Right. So what does a new system, I I don't know the answer to this problem, but like, there needs to be a better way. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I'm glad that you shared that, actually, because I think that's, that's a really important perspective for people in the accredited space to think about because there's been this pendulum shift you know in the past you could talk to supporters and of course we don't call them sponsors anymore and then you couldn't and now the the pendulum seems to have swung a little bit yeah you can sort of have a conversation but (laughs) you know there's a but oh yeah no i remember the days where you couldn't there i think it was like west virginia and some other state where like you you literally couldn't be in the same room there was you couldn't do a coffee you couldn't (laughs) give anybody a pen like and influence is an important thing to consider right Mm -hmm. and i think about it from the perspective of women so bias is real like that's a thing so when a company is taking a group of doctors out to golf Yes, there's going to be sort of a relationship, a bias that's built over time that is the intention of that activity, right? So how do you eliminate that, but maintain that dialogue that I think truly is necessary for everyone to advance? It's a huge question mark. I mean, I'm sure it's something that everybody thinks about in this space. And you know, we shape shift over time and hopefully we'll end up eventually at, at a better way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thanks for, for sharing that. You mentioned time and I'm conscious of our of our time. I did want to ask, you know, what what is coming up for women as one? What's you know, you you you've talked about you you some of the outreach that you do, you write a lot of grants and and run programs. So I guess I have two questions here. What do some of those programs look like? And and what's next? What's on the horizon? Yeah, I don't know. No, it's a. <laughs> in many ways, I actually don't know because, as I said, it's, it has been very much sort of this grand experiment. But we've we've I think hit some success with several of our program models. We offer um, a clinical training program uh, called Climb. It's virtual training over six months, small case based kind of discussions, which has been very successful. And I think one of the better models I've seen from an educational standpoint because they're these more intimate environments and international participants. It's just been great. Lots of different topics. Uh, We have an awards program that we call our Escalator Awards. And then we have an in-person program that we call RISE. So the second edition of RISE is coming up in 2024 in London. And we're just putting the program details together now but are also considering kind of how to maximize the utility of our talent directory, this database I was describing. So Mm. how can we kind of continue to grow this data and the information, you know, repository and utilize that in a way that benefits as many women as possible. So really trying to drive out the opportunity to different, not just pharma and med device companies, but, you know, hospitals, academic institutions, other professional societies that are maybe looking to diversify their faculty rosters, for example, they can come to us and 
you know, we're able to kind of go in and make use of this data. And you're seeing more and more women kind of out in the field in more prominent positions. So to me, that's, that's the most gratifying thing is that, you know, the, the experiment is working to some extent, and we're always trying to tinker with the, the methodology. But I think it's been a, it's been great so far and, and very rewarding. And so how do you see the field of representation for women in cardiology shifting in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I was just at a conference in Vienna. Sounds great. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but it was at a conference in Vienna. And uh, we were doing a breakout session talking with industry about how they can improve diversity in, in clinical trial leadership. Mm. And I was the co-lead on the session. And the question about quotas came up, right? Like, do you put a number on it? Do you put like a benchmark on we need 50% of our trial leaders to be women. We need 50% of our faculty to be women. And I basically said like, which maybe seems counter to what the intent was, but like, no, because in interventional cardiology, for example, 5% of interventional cardiologists are women, only 20% roughly are cardiologists. So to say we need 50% of our faculty to be women, like that's not Something. I mean, maybe it's achievable, but it's not achievable in a, in a meaningful way. There's downstream and work so, to be done in order to get so much downstream work. Those women, and yeah. So it's less about the representation from a number standpoint, and more about the quality of the experience for the women who do choose to go in. Can we provide appropriate parental leave? Can we get the radiation safety mythology mm-hmm. under control? Because there's lots of variation as far as, you know, whether or not women who are pregnant can go into the cath lab, for example, when they're pregnant. In Italy, they can't at all. In the United States, they can be in there until the day they give birth. Like, oh my why is that? That's not so. So we needed to do some work there to kind of create an understanding of what's safe. There are lots of, like you said, sort of downstream things that we need to be doing to make sure that the culture is is more friendly, that the regulations are more clear, and that women feel like they've got an equal opportunity. And I hope at least in having more conversation about this as a field, having these kinds of discussions, we're able to just raise awareness, but then also do the work behind it through organizations like Women as One to to change things. And one key message that you would want Right Medicine listeners to take away from this conversation? Yeah, well, I talked about so many different things. So, <laughs> And I would imagine your, your core audience is, is a group that is interested in sort of the medical writing piece of this. But also the wider kind of, you know, I think, you know, one of the, the things that can be challenging for people in this space sometimes is, is actually kind of keeping a handle on, you know, the, the evolving trends within healthcare. And especially when we're talking about, you know, kind of specialist areas where particular things might be happening. But, you know, gender equity is is a trend that everyone needs to understand and be able to kind of think their way through. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And I would say, you know, as it relates to your listeners, maybe the message or the take home message is, you know, what, I, what is the Ted Lasso saying? Like, be curious, right? So you always look for the opportunity, look for ways of solving problems, and it will take you in different directions. And And gender equity was my direction. But it all started with 
grant writing. And it all started with simply being curious and trying to understand what I was writing. Like, what am I writing about? I'm not a robot, right? I need to know. And so stay curious, do your homework and, and volunteer. I think that's another really big message. And I know, how can I help? That's the best that I could ever hear from my staff. How can, what do you want me to do? How can I help? I think as you're starting out, like be open to doing new things. I love that question. How can I help? Where can people find you, Rebecca? In my closet. No. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually true. Uh, Womenisone.org is our website. You can also email me, Rebecca at womenisone.org. Happy to talk. I'm extremely responsive. So uh, if you want to reach out, please do. And we'll make sure that all that information is in the show notes so that if you do have questions for Rebecca, you can get in touch with her. Rebecca Ortega problem solver, curiosity seeker, and volunteer. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Right Medicine. You're welcome. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter, where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.